This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, we're discussing predictions for 5.5 and 6th edition and whether or not you need a grid for grid-based combat or it's better to do everything theatre of the mind or can you do both, as well as advice for running your own one-shot, all that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one Woo-hoo! podcast in all of Drakenheim. That's right. The, the Lawcast spreads like the haze through Drakenheim, causing all sorts of mutations and horribleness to happen. But you're euphoric. It's a really fun time. So you don't notice that you're growing gills and uh, extra scales and all those things. My name is Ben Byrne and I am here as always with James Hake, uh, Sean Merwin and welcome back Dale Kingsmill uh, to this episode of the podcast. Dale, first of all, a public Eldritch Lawcast happy birthday to you for the weekend. Thank you very much. Uh, And second of all, what is your go-to one-shot whether you're introducing new adventurers or you just need something for the weekend, what's what's the adventure that you've run a couple of times that you're like, this is a great one shot? My go-to is, and you know, you know that you've got one when it does come to mind immediately. My go-to is actually a Pathfinder uh, adventure called Hollow's Last Hope, uh, which I, at some point in my uh, DMing journey, I sort of converted a little bit to be more 5e friendly I kind of uh, condense the story to be sort of more of one thread. It's a little bit branching in its existing form. Uh, And I I just think it's really handy and really fun and, uh, you know, covers some riddles, covers some combat. It's got a good little spread of stuff to do. Um, No, I think think it's cool. But I am also currently on the lookout for a new go-to one-shot. So I'm keeping my ears peeled. My ears peeled? Sure. If you have a go-to one-shot to suggest, leave it in the Twitch chat if you're watching this on Twitch or on the YouTube comments on our new YouTube channel. Uh, I've got a go-to one-shot to suggest. I have. um, So this one is also a 5e conversion, so some assembly required. But one of the best one-shots I've ever had DM'd for me that convinced me to uh, take it apart, put it into 5e and run with it, is from Green Ronin's Dragon Age RPG. And it's uh, it's from a collection of adventures that I believe is called Tales from Thetis. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent on this, but um, the adventure itself is called The Amber Rage, and it's uh, it's set in the marshes of Ferelden. And uh, basically, this little village that you are in, it starts with a festival, which I think is very modern of it, sort of fifteen years before its time, or ten years, or whatever it's been. Um, it was the first adventure I ever played that started in a festival. So yeah, I, that's one of the reasons why I liked it so much. Um, and basically uh, all of this jubilation is suddenly broken when a bunch of berserkers from the marshes come running in. They've got this disease that uh, makes them all angry and, and feral. And uh, even though you stave off the attack, uh, a, a little pandemic occurs within this village and the players are, are tasked with going into the marsh and uh, getting a a cure before the uh, the black haulers, the judges, uh, come in and summarily execute everyone in town and put a stop to this disease. Can I just say, my Hollow's Last Hope is also about a little outbreak of a pandemic in a town, and you have to go off, off into the dangerous forest to find a cure. <laughs> well, maybe you can sort of steal some bits and bobs from it to like, create the super version of yeah. this sort of adventure concept. 
Do do pandemics make for a good D&D adventure because they are like an existential threat facing a population that the player characters themselves are fundamentally immune to? So that well, I they- think in this one, in Dragon Age, the player characters get it also. Though I guess these days, most of the campaigns I start, I just sort of create a, a, a new thing from scratch because I have campaigns on the mind. But if I'm ever running a one-shot, then that is absolutely the go-to. So I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to say something I wrote uh, because I've probably run it <laughs> 700 do times. It. Uh, when I was writing the Adventures League adventures, every season they would have an adventure to kick everything off. And they would always be, uh, fu- they're, they're one adventure, but they're made of five mini adventures that you can run in an hour each. So uh, Treasures of the Broken Horde is the kickoff for the Against the Giants sort of uh, season of, of D&D and Adventures League. The first adventure in that uh, series I love running. Uh, the characters are going to be hired by this fancy, popular, uh, like TV star of an adventurer. They're going to track down the treasure from the, uh, the cultists who uh, <laughs> the cultists who worship the dragons and they got their treasure all okay. taken away and the dragons were all killed. So you go out and you find this super popular adventurer dead where you were supposed to meet her. And there's a trail leading away. So you follow the trail and you go to this cave. And basically what happens is you find one of the hordes of these dragon cultists. However, it was cursed. So every all the monsters in there have been shrunken down to like 120th of their normal size. So you are first attacked by a swarm of shrunken uh, goblins. So think of goblins, but this big rat sized just swarming all over you and like getting pulling pulling your nose hairs and trying to cut your straps of your armor and and that sort of thing then you have to contend with a hill giant that has been turned into a hill giant the size of a goblin who still thinks it's a hill giant and you get to hopefully save his pet bear who is now shrunk down to the size of a house cat and you have to make some animal handling and nature checks to save this uh, bear. But if you do, you now have a pet that is a bear the size of a house cat whose name is Blood Drinker. So, you know, that, oh, oh, oh. I'm so happy. That's the yeah. That's that's how you hit them. You know, one hour, boom, you get this experience, and then you can go to the other locations where these other hordes have been kept and deal with all of this strange strangeness. Um, but if I'm going to sit down and somebody wants to learn the game, I give them a pregen and we do this and it's very evocative and you can have lots of fun with the different, oh, you're shrunk down and it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool and easy to run. So that's what I go with. Me and my party were very nearly massacred by giant badgers in one of the other bits of, of mm-hmm. that adventure. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'm never, badgers. Those badgers. Mm-hmm. I've never uh, run it or played it, but I have heard, like, as you're describing it, I'm like, yeah, that's familiar. Someone has definitely uh, spoken highly of that to me before. Look, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, and I love it. And I immediately assembled a team of players in my head that I want to run it for. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of things that are near perfect, uh, if I don't say so myself, though, mind you, I didn't work on this. Um, Dungeons of Drakenheim, uh, or should I say Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim, yes. 
um, is the latest Kickstarter from Ghostfire Gaming. It launched less than 12 hours ago from when we are recording and already has reached uh, almost 400,000 uh, uh, pledged uh, amount uh, with over 2,000, 2,600 backers so far. Um, this is... This is just like a warm hug from the Dungeon Dudes community. Um, uh, they uh, they do awesome work. Uh, I've read through parts of Dungeons of Drakenheim. I very much almost ran that for my uh, player group recently. Um, they just do amazing work uh, and watching it tick up to funded in less than three minutes, which I believe is a ghost fire record, uh, and then reach 100,000 within half an hour um, was really, really uh, just wonderful from the community. And you could see I was in a chat with the dudes at the time. Uh, you could just see them like going, you know, so, so embraced by their community and really enjoying being in their Discord and chatting with everyone. Uh, Sean, you were also there, maybe not when it launched, but beforehand, uh, and we're talking about the love for Dungeons of Drakenheim as a sort of... Um, you know, D&D adventure world beforehand. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about what you said last night? Because I thought that was really lovely too. Yeah, it, it, there was a thread on EN World where it, they, they do these threads every once in a while. They, they call them survivor threads. And they'll take about 20 things. And it's not a review. It's not anything, you know, objective. It's just subjectively, you can upvote and downvote one thing on the list. And you can just go back every day, once per day, and do that. And then we see who is the last one standing. They did one for a million dollar Kickstarters over the last few years, or RPG uh, Kickstarters. And of the $20 million plus Kickstarters that were on the list, Ghostfire Projects, there were three of them. We all came in in at least the top nine. And Dungeons of Drakenheim was in the top three. And I think it just goes to show that a uh the the dungeon dudes have a great brand they're great people they give to their communities things that their community wants whether that's in terms of a live stream play or in terms of advice and so that that gets them a lot of love in their community they used forged with ghostfire which is what we provide and that gave them an even bigger platform and people that may not have known their stream. And then it becomes a recurring loop of, okay, now I'll go watch them. Ooh, they, these are great. People talk about them. Then they get more product. We deliver a pretty good product on behalf of the Dungeon Dudes. And it just, it, it's a loop that, that keeps going. And I think mm -hmm. uh, the Dungeon Dudes have given a lot. The, the class I teach, I ask people at the beginning of class, you know, what do you watch? What do you, how do you get your news or how do you get your DM advice or player advice? And Dungeon Dudes always come up, at least by a couple mm. people. Uh, so, I, you know, I know that that means that they are putting out uh, content that is, that is valuable for people. Dale and James, have you, have you explored Drakenheim much, even cursorily? Drakenheim, I'm not too familiar with, but the Dungeon Dudes are absolutely fantastic people. You know, I've watched a handful of their, of their videos. I don't watch GM advice videos very much anymore just because uh, I'm, I'm content with where my GMing is right now. Um, but, they're, but just to get a sense of who they were, uh, I watched a handful of them and I was, I was impressed by the quality of the advice. And, the, and more than that, the quality of just the 
how shall I say it, the rapport that they have with one another. It's a very good team that they've got going on. And that that was really clear when they uh, wrote for Fables back in our original Fable in mm. Citadel of the Unseen Sun. They they did they tackled the final uh, episode of that fable. And I guess the minor spoilers, but they, they uh, infuse some fun genre bending stuff into that episode. And you can tell that they have this sort of personal stamp um, that that infused a little bit of, of what I think of that sort of Drakenheim flavor, right? Because Drakenheim has that sort of sci-fi-ish uh, bent to it as well, even though it's in a dark fantasy genre. And, and, and you can tell that they just love what they do. They love the medium they work in, the genre they work in. They love mm. doing it. Absolutely lovely dudes. And in fact, you can uh, see them. They were on the podcast, I think, two, three weeks ago. Yeah, um, not long ago. I'll put a link if you're listening to this on YouTube up there. I think I'm pointing in the right direction. Um, to There's that always episode. that moment. Is, uh, is, so which way am I pointing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it that? It's the. It's always the opposite of what you think. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the new book, uh, including, I think, the big draw of this one, uh, and I am excited to delve into this a little bit more, is The Apothecary Class. Um, which is an intelligence-based spellcaster, um, but really drawing on that, uh, you know, investigator, um, gothic horror, Victorian gothic, you know, there's a Jekyll and Hyde subclass for it. There's a um, Frankenstein-style subclass for it, um, really focusing on that dark fantasy, grounded uh, style of spellcasting, which I think, dare I say, that the apothecary may be what I had hoped uh, for the artificer on some level. The artificer was very cool in its own right, and you can play Tony Stark, but it does feel a little bit um, like high fantasy, like it's like up here. Everything about it is just like, it just happens because, you know, you have your tools and you touch it to something and then it's magical five minutes later and it's like, all right, well, that's well and good, but I don't really feel like I'm tinkering, you know. I want to feel like I'm getting my hands dirty when I make something. Um and bringing a corpse back to life, um, there's no way to dirty your hands better. We just uh, got a notification through our company channels from Phil, one of our producers, our, our main TTRPG producer. And uh, he just let us know that today is now our officially uh, our best first day of a Kickstarter ever uh, in Ghostfire history. So, Yeet. hey, Dungeon Dudes. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> and hey, Ghostfire Marketing, all the lovely people who work behind the scenes and the people who exactly. supported all of this. Yeah, Amazing. absolutely. I just quick shout out to Ona Christensen, who's the art director uh, for Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. Uh, Martin Hughes, who does the layouts. Um, uh, Matt Domino, who's an illustrator uh, who has helped working uh, on Sebastian Crow's. Simon, uh, who mm. we have a, a running gag in the office uh, that uh, Simon is the hardest working out of everybody in the company. So, uh, yeah, big shout out to Simon and, of course, uh, the the Dungeon Dudes team as well. Super exciting. Um, they are streaming. I know it's probably not kosher to send people to another stream while we're still in the middle of one, but I believe they're streaming on their YouTube channel right now, uh, giving a bit more information, delving into the book a little bit deeper. So if you want more information, you can go check that out. Um, we will, of course be on YouTube ourselves on Wednesday. So you can have your cake and eat it too. You can go to that stream if you want to right now and then watch us on VOD. Yeah, go mute this stream, but leave the window <laughs> but open. leave it running. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 That's, uh, that was implicit. That was implied. <laughs> you never close the stream. That's, mm -mm, that would mm -mm. just be rude. 
Um, speaking of not being rude, um, actually, you know what? We're going to go off script a little bit here because James Hake yes. brought uh, my attention to something on Twitter just before we recorded and I had to go find the link again. Um, James, do you want to walk us through this? Uh, what this, this, this tidbit again, we're getting these morsels, but they're so fascinating and fun to talk about. Um, oh, certainly. Sly Flourish, Mike Shea, who is a wonderful person whom Sean and I have both worked with before, um, posted uh, at Ray Winninger, present you with Melody, a link to a Sly Flourish blog post that says what I'd love from the next iteration of D&D. And we'll go into what exactly is in there in a moment. But Ray Winninger, who, if you don't know, is the uh, uh, I'm going to mess this title up, but essentially the head of development, game development over at Wizards of the Coast for D&D, uh, quote her tweets and says, I think you're going to be pleased, um, mm. which one leads me to believe there's going to be some big, exciting news at this uh, much hyped, big, exciting D&D sort of symposium that Wizards got uh, planned in the immediate future that they've been mm. talking about. Um, but let's take a look at uh, what Sly Flourish, Mike Shea, says in this article, what I'd love from the next iteration of D&D, one that it's fully backwards compatible. Uh, if, if an adventure calls for a veteran stat block, he wants a compatible veteran coming out of the new monster manual and knowing that it works just fine. I think that's a good thing to ask for. Easier encounter building, the oft-cited bugbear of fifth edition that encounter math is impenetrable and that even wizards does not use the encounter maths in the DMG. Also, I think in a, a safe ask from basically everyone who's running 5e right now. Mm. Include theater of the mind guidelines for combat. I think this is a pretty interesting one. Uh, both the DMG and Xanathar's includes pages and pages of optional rules for gridded play and hardly any guidelines for running games in theater of the mind or an abstract map combat. I think uh, we can turn to games like Fate or other ones that uh, are, are built without a map in mind for how to run combats without using five foot squares literally represented on a grid. But uh, if D&D wants to tout theater of the mind play as one of its core means of running combat, then um, going to another game's uh, game master book does not seem like the uh, the most straightforward way of doing that. Mm. Um, and it, an alternative option to gridded play, not a replacement. This, I talk about modularity in 5e all the time as being something that I want in this like the big module. Um, Strength and high CR monsters. This is this is an uh, an axe to grind that Mike talks about a lot. Uh, the high CR monsters, uh, in his opinion, are a little bit of a wet noodle when it's uh, when it comes to their offensive capabilities against high CR uh, against high level players. Uh, fix certain spells and abilities uh, that just kind of instantly win combats. Thing like banish polymorph heroes feast. Uh, messy ones like conjure animals, which will summon eight wolves uh, <laughs> in the midst of a combat and just like <laughs> drag everything to a molasses slow pace. Um, and, and a handful of other things uh, include the upgrades that Tasha's has made, provide less problematic descriptions for races, um, which a number of products, including our Aurora campaign setting, have, uh, have taken a look at and update the OGL to include the new edition and leave everything else the heck alone. Mm. Um, that's everything that Mike has called for. Um, and to hear Ray say, we'll be excited, seems to suggest that even some, maybe even a majority of what Mike is calling for in this document will, will be uh, deeply, closely assessed in the upgrade to the next edition. All for of sure. those things sound like no-brainers to me. 
Um, and it makes me happy to hear that. Yeah. Oh, he did a head tilt. It wasn't even the it wasn't <laughs> the even arm the cross. arms cross. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if they. I agree that they would seem like no brainers, uh, probably to a fan base. I'm not sure from the other. And, and to be honest, you know, James, you and Sean especially would have more experience than I in that specific field. Um, uh, from a more industry perspective about um, these sort of things. Because, you know, I look at theatre of the mind guidelines for combat and my more cynical brain turns on. First of all, if they're, if they're about to announce a VTT for um, D&D Beyond or, or D&D in general, which was one of the speculations we made last week about Wizards Presents, it would seem, you know, it's sort of what they tried to do with 4E, really push gridded combat, really push that VTT. If you're not playing on the VTT, you're not playing D&D. And I don't think they'll go that hard at it, but my more cynical brain does wonder if, like, you know, support for theatre of the mind is like half a page or a page in the DMG that just kind of says, like, oh, yeah, you could do it this way, you know. I think it's a it's a really good point, and, and I might be 10 years in the past because the early phases of 5th edition really heavily emphasized theater of the mind as an option. It just never really gave hard tools to use sure. it. What I always think is really interesting when it comes to theater of the mind and um, the support that is built into the game for it is that, you know, I I do sort of read the, the fifth edition, uh, you know, player's handbook or DMG as it exists and go, yeah, okay, there is clearly some love here for theater of the mind, the way that they talk about combat. But then in every other aspect of the book, when you're talking about classes, when you're talking about spells, you suddenly lose the language that supports theater of the mind. Suddenly it is very intricately um, interwoven with, you know, feet distance and, you know, it's it's 20 foot radius. You can cast it at a point centered 30 feet away from you. It's It, it all gets very tricky to keep in your head if you're doing theater of the mind. So it's one of those things where I do think that it was an intended um, thing for, for theater of the mind to be core to the game. But once you move a little bit further away from talking about combat, it starts to kind of get lost in the source. And yet when you look at the state of D&D when 5e was published, it seemed like a great step in the opposite direction from what fourth edition did in which all distances were measured in squares for effects like that. And so suddenly having it be, yes, we're going to say 30 feet instead of six squares. It's like, wow, we're back to measuring in feet. This is an incredible change. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, it's, it certainly isn't theater of the mind forward. When you have one of your uh, character race traits be, you can move 35 feet instead of 30 feet you are almost immediately saying theater of the mind is is not how we expect you to play the game because we're measuring everything in five-foot increments. Uh, and I don't think it, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to give some guidelines for, if I'm playing theater of the mind and the wizard casts the fireball on the group, how, do, how should we do that? What are some ways we can do that? Even giving some ideas about running a game narratively it, I don't. I try not to think as theater of the mind as as a as a tactical option, but as a narrative option. I think if the game designers went at it in that way, let's play narratively rather than than grid based. You can come at it from from different from a different direction, and you can 
make a different, slightly different game without having to write a completely different game. And that's what I would like to see. Uh, that, that sort of the advice on, it's easy to say, don't worry about distances. You can shoot your bow if you can see your enemy. Great. It's when you get to those, as Dale was talking about, the spells that are so intricately uh, described in feet and positioning. That's where you need the advice of a game designer who has thought about it for more than a week to say, how do we service this narrative-based uh, fan base and make a good game, a, maybe a great game for them? while still giving them concrete rules to fall back on. It hurts my brain to think about threading the needle or uh, threading the bridge, as it were, um, around uh, creating a game that serves both the kind of narrative needs of, uh, you know, people who want to play the game narratively and the people who enjoy combat as a tactical wargamey style uh, sort of thing. And I think that D&D and... and um, you know, I think Mike even says in uh, this article that changing too much about D&D makes it not D&D anymore. I feel like getting too far away from the tactical wargamey combat um, uh, takes it away from being D&D, but I think also getting too far into that takes it away from being D&D. It kind of exists in this nebulous in-between Um I sort of threw this out last week, uh, although I don't know, I can't remember if we drilled down on it. So I apologize if this is a slight repeat. Do we see the potential for like uh, advanced 5e or like a version of 5 or, or a, a kind of splitting where there's like here are the simple rules or here are the rules to get started and they are the more narrative-based rules and they really lean into theatre of the mind and here is all these modular like if you want to treat the combat like a war game, like a Pokemon battle and it goes diddly 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 and then you're like on a grid suddenly, um, here are those rules kind of almost separate that kind of, you know, uh, latch on to the, the, the simpler rules. Can we see the game being kind of split apart that much? I I think I could imagine that. I could imagine that. I can't remember if I said this last week because I do remember us briefly touching on it, but uh, on Twitter lately, there's been a set of threads, I don't recall who, um, that has been analyzing sales data from D&D in the 80s and 90s. And one of them really marks the uh, the marked lower sales of advanced Dungeons and Dragons versus basic Dungeons and Dragons and how even though that advanced in AD&D was something of a, of a status symbol, it wasn't even really much of a comment on the, the relative complexity of the rules. Um, but the, the idea that this game was somehow more advanced than the other D&D, which is already you know, reasonably complex in its own right, really scared people off is I think a, a conclusion to draw from that. And uh, I can't imagine Wizards doing something that, that, that mirrors that decision uh, these days, especially because they seem to kind of want to unify 5e in a big mm. way. Here's another question I had, sorry, looking at Mike Shea's list, uh, which was like fix certain spells and abilities. And someone who has come in at 5e uh, or come in at 5e's level, 
I've just kind of taken it for Wait. granted. <laughs> Sorry, Ben, I don't want to interrupt you. Someone no, in the please. chat says, I don't seem to be much of a fan of tactical war game D&D. My favorite video game series is Fire Emblem. Miss me with that. I love tactical war game D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I want to set the record straight there. I love it when D&D gets tactical. Um, and and I love a nice balance of, of role play and tactics in my in my D&D play. Um, sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I largely agree with you. Um, it, and, you know, and like Sean was saying, it is hard with the class abilities. I know uh, I played Theory of the Mind in a pub because we didn't have room for a grid um, mm. or a battle map or, or anything. And one character was playing a rogue and he was kind of, he didn't realize he was struggling with the class and the class's abilities until somebody bought in a little whiteboard that was only yay big um, about, you know, 15 centimeters by 30 centimeters, something like that, um, if you use the metric system. Um, and it had Good the luck, little- Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, figure that one out. <laughs> um, and it had little squares on it. So we could basically, it was still fundamentally theater of the mind, but it was like, you know, this is exactly where you are and this is where the enemy is and this is the distance between. And it just unlocked the class for him. He was like, oh, I understand what I need to do now. I need to get over here because, okay, and just just the movement seems to become so much more important. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I, I read someone, it might have even been in the comments on um, last week's Lawcast that was saying there are some classes that are just hurt more by theatre of the mind and, and Rogue is one of them, and I'd just never thought of that before. But it really is true because, because it is such a tactical class. You mm. know, it requires thinking about your placement so carefully, even if you're not, you know, dealing with flanking rules or things like that. You're still having to think about line of sight, whether you're hidden, all of these different little things that have to do with sneak attack, whether whether you get your um, your dash as a as a rogue action. You know, all these little things that um, that are much more in play if you're playing on a grid compared to if you're playing in the mind. Mm. But it also it also makes me think of um, this interesting juxtaposition that does happen between like like James was saying. I like role play and I like tactics, right? And it made me think of, and I'm going to try to, to thread this bridge uh, without without hitting uh, any spoilers, but in a recent episode of, of Critical Role, of course, there, there was uh, a combat that broke out, but it was a, a, in a very interesting kind of um, dramatic role play moment. Um, and it was interesting to me to, to note this difference between when combat in critical role goes to the grid and when it doesn't because right. it, it was this choice of this is this is a combat yes but it is also a, a heavy role play moment so we're just going to keep it up here kind of in our brains and uh and see how we go with it um when yeah. matt's prepared a diorama or not um yeah that helps. <laughs> are we been, likely to die today yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing a lot of online chess recently just to like fill little 15 minute gaps in my workday. Um, and I'm not a very good chess player. I can't think 10 moves ahead in the way that like grandmasters do. I don't have the, the you know, book, the, the book of chess plays memorized. But one of the things that strikes me about tactical grid play in chess uh, that is, is also very similar to tactical grid play in D&D, for me at least, is that uh, it's most fun when you're in a position where uh, you're not just committed to one thing. Let me explain what I mean by that. Your comment about rogues and sneak attack and positioning made me think of this. One of the things that 
really makes rogues explosive is the way that sneak attack works and how uh, someone can be doing one thing and also giving you sneak attack, maybe unintentionally. Mm -hmm. A fighter runs in to attack one enemy and you suddenly gain sneak attack on a totally different enemy who happens to be within five feet of the fighter just by virtue of them being in the position that they're in. It's like in chess when you move your... You know, you move your knight into position and suddenly you've got an attack on both their king and their rook. You've forked them. You forked and, them. Yeah. Forked them and, up. <laughs> <laughs> and because they have to move the king, you get a free rook out of the exchange, right? It's, it's, you've done two things at once and the rogue really excels in positions like that. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the, that's the meat of tactical play because you've, you've managed to think a couple of moves ahead and do mm-hmm. all that. And to the and- mind... Yeah, uh, you know that's not what theater of the mind wants to do. It's that that's all that is very true. We also need to note though that by making it tactical play, you also do things like slow the game down and remove yourself mm-hmm. from the narrative to focus specifically. No, don't stand there. Stand here, and then twenty minutes pass as all six players at the table and the game master are all. Saying, well, if you stood here, then this, then this, whereas in a, you can make 5.5 as, assuming they put flanking back in, right? Flanking is an optional rule. I know that many, many people use it because it used to not be an optional rule. But if you remove flanking from the game, you can do everything to get a sneak attack that a rogue can do in theater of the mind. Uh, Is there someone standing next to your target? Yes, you can sneak attack. Are you hidden? Yes, you can sneak attack. That can be done just as easily in theater of the mind as it as it is mm-hmm. tactically. Now, you might have to three seconds to say, am I hidden? Roll a stealth check. Now, the next version of the game could just say, if you're playing theater of the mind, rather than trying to figure out where you are or where everyone else is on the board, use your bonus action to make a stealth check. Use your bonus action to make a deception check to 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 trick your enemy into thinking you're going to stab him in the leg when you stab them in the chest. Uh, you know, all of those things can very easily with one die roll or even one roll, use your bonus action. You automatically will get sneak attack on your next attack. Uh, that can be done very quickly, very easily. And then the narrative comes to the fore rather than moving, counting out st- your squares 37 times to make sure you're getting there in six moves instead of seven. Uh, right. So it's, it's a, it's a uh, give and take on what people mm-hmm. truly love about D and if you truly love tactical combat, which I do, uh, then great. We can make a game that works that way. I think we can also make a game that works the other way with just a little forethought and a little attention to that side of things uh, they're, they've got some incredible game designers at Wizards of the Coast right now. I'm sure they can do it if they really, really want to. I think, Sean, you're right on the money uh, about this. And I think it's exactly what Mike is asking for, is that uh, he doesn't use these words exactly, but theater of the mind and tactical play have different implicit priorities. And the mm-hmm. 5e rulebooks don't make those implicit priorities explicit to players and game masters. And that's where the, that's where the tension comes from. That's where the, why isn't theater of the mind giving me the sort of juice that I want tactical play to do. And it's, well, it's because it's not, it, it doesn't want to, unless you really make it work. <laughs> 
now I want to hear what Ben has to no, say. No, no, uh, it's not a disagreement. If anything, it, it's an agreement. But I'm just like threading that bridge is going to be um, fascinating because now I'm one. I'm like, how do you do that without writing two versions of the rules fundamentally, right? Because the other thing that that tactical combat does in the current or, or grid-based combat does in the current uh, game is um, I think there's kind of a balancing effect on the rules, right? Like I'm not just thinking of Rogue, but I'm also thinking of like the Paladin's aura. And it's like, well, in Theatre of the Mind, can we all fit within the Paladin's aura? It's like, um, uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I don't, I don't see why not or, or I'm not going to argue that you can't. But, uh, you know, but the party are all squished in one corner of the room. Whereas if you go onto the grid, it's like, no, you can't all fit in the Paladin's aura because the tunnel's this wide and it goes around a corner and there's boxes in the way and blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, with the rogue sneak attack, it's like, uh, can I get into a position where I can hide? Uh, and it's like, well, no, like physically you can't. There's there's, there's too many squares or you put yourself out in the middle of the, the room uh, and you can't get away to get around the corner to get yourself into to a position where you, you can hide. Um, go ahead, Sean. So here's a simple solution to that paladin problem, right? Rather than saying in the rules, your paladin aura is 10 feet. Everyone within 10 feet gets this bonus. Oh, you're now 15th level. Everyone within 20 feet now has this bonus to saves. You change the rule by saying one creature you can see. Oh, you're higher level, two creatures right. you can see. Higher level, three creatures you can see. And now is there a, you know, is there some sort of godlike rule telling us that it's coming from the paladin, so therefore it has to be distance related? No. So change the mm. game slightly to, to make it work both ways. Also note the interesting little sort of the the subtle implicit uh, change with though with that terminology that uh, influences it in a slightly more role play direction. You have to choose which person. Which person are you protecting? <laughs> Who do you love more? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess uh, like where I was going is is there a you know again to look at uh, five point five or six e in a modular way or potentially an advanced way is. Is there a version of the rules that's kind of like this more, um, you know, theatre of the mind uh, uh, dedicated kind of way, a way that is thought of specifically to be really applicable in theatre of the mind, can be done on a grid just as easily, but really applicable to theatre of the mind, making changes like instead of distance, it's, pardon me, who can see what, uh, and then like a supplement that drops, you know, a year, two years later, that's like the war game manual of like, all right, this is how to do tactical combat if you want to do like d d like a war game, um, and it's the Pokemon battle. Also, eight wolves sucks. <laughs> I, you don't want eight wolves on your battlefield? <laughs> no, I don't like that. I played with a druid once and they, they were third or fourth level. I can't quite. Maybe they were fifth level. I, I can't love remember that at what point. I played with a druid once. Okay. <laughs> um, I have war flashbacks. Just, just their go-to was hit the red button, eight wolves. And this was before my realization that like the DM can technically choose what the animals are, you know, in negotiation, I suppose, because it wouldn't have been eight wolves every time. But just the, the culmination of this was there's a, a scene that I've run a couple of times. I think it's actually from Horde of the Dragon Queen, but I've never read it. I've just like run it 
after having it run for me. Um, but there's like a dragonborn who comes to a keep and he's like, you know, I demand a champion, come out and fight me. And it's a mano a mano match. And the intention is that this dragonborn just monsters the party member. But it's like, you know, you're just setting up your big bad for the for the next stretch of the campaign. Like this dude is is bad news and you should be scared of him. And the party are trying to decide who to send out. And I'd run this, you know, a dozen times by this point. Um, and they're, they're like, all right, well, let's send out the fighter or the paladin. You know, they're big, they're bulky. It'll be like, you know, they'll, they'll be able to tank hits, blah, blah, blah. And the druid just goes, I wander out. And I'm like, oh, okay, the druid's going out. And I didn't see it coming. This was the worst bit is I didn't see it coming. He just walks up and he's like, and I summon eight wolves and run away. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> it's um, me playing Elden Ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had assumed coming in at the fifth level level um, or the fifth edition level, I should say, um, that problematic spells were just going to be part of the game because, uh, you know, you need spells that do cool things and some spells just by their very nature are going to be very powerful for specific circumstances. You know, Banish is incredibly powerful or Polymorph is incredibly powerful when you face the party with a single T-Rex to try and create a Jurassic Park moment. But it's not as powerful if they're facing a horde of Velociraptors or Skeletons or whatever it is because you can only Banish or Polymorph one thing at a time, I think, at least in the base version of the spell. So I had kind of accepted that it was situational yet very powerful. Um is like, is this wish of Mike Shea's like possible? You know, is there a way to create spells that are fun to play that don't become problematic in specific situations? This is a really interesting offshoot of the discussion we've been having about tactical versus narrative play. People love their big solo monsters. And typically that's from a narrative standpoint because tactically they don't really, they punch below their weight class because of D&D's you know, sort of preference towards really strong single target removal to use a Magic the Gathering term. Um, <laughs> you know, D&D really lavishes its attention on Fireball, which is an area of effect mm. spell. It gets a lot of individual creatures. But the, the applicability of AOE spells is really dependent on encounter design, right? How big is the arena? How spread out are the monsters? There's all of these mitigating factors that, that, that limit the power of of aoe effects whereas really there's one thing that really throws a wrench in the gears of single target removal legendary resistance um and that's a thing that you know it, it's got its problems players tend to hate it unless they've kind of reckoned with it already unless they're veteran enough to know that oh yeah they're the big monsters are just going to ignore our big stuff three times before we can handle it um and if they don't have legendary resistance, then oh yeah, and then I polymorph or I banish or I or I may handle it in some similar way. I you know sickening ray or whatever the the single target removal of that um, of that level tends to be. I like to think about spells in terms of stories. Like we're going mm-hmm. to have a Conan movie. We're going to have right some sort of fantasy movie. Is it cool when? You know the the monster the party comes into this final combat and banish one of the monsters. You know the big bad guy. Is that fun for you as a viewer of the movie to watch? If the answer is no, then you probably don't want that spell in the game because mm-hmm. it's not going to be satisfying 
for everyone at the table, game master and player alike. So, right, seeing a big fireball fireball go off in a D&D movie and things get crisp, everyone would stand up and cheer. Uh, seeing the big T-Rex turned into a mouse and then picked up by the tail might be funny, right, if it's the first combat of the movie where we see how magic works. But for the final encounter, would that be satisfying for viewers? If not, then why do you want it in your game? And sadly, the game has this bit of nostalgia with it that people are going to have a hard time getting over the fact that there isn't a polymorph spell that you can polymorph the monster into something um, and they will be all up in arms because it's not there when maybe it doesn't belong there uh, because it's not a, it's not a great uh, story narrative tool. There's something that Colville has talked about before, which PS shout out to Matt. Thanks for filling in for me last week. Thanks. Um, There's something that Colville has talked about, in terms of um, designing interesting encounters and interesting villains and monsters, um, saying that they should have different abilities to what are available to player characters. They work differently. They play by their own rules, and that genuinely does free up a lot of space in terms of how these kinds of things work, right? And I don't think that this is something that would ever be done because there is a certain ethos when designing uh, Dungeons and Dragons as a game where you want everyone at the table to be playing by the same rules. You want everyone to be on the same page playing by the same rules. And so they would never do this. But wouldn't it free up so much if there were some spells that are available to bad guys that aren't available to players? Something something that, that you have to contend with, like banishment, as a player, that's like, oh no, like what a dramatic, cool moment to have one of the party members be banished. But if that was like, relegated to bad guys until very high levels of the game that I feel like that kind of thing makes for really cool, interesting encounter design, but it's not something that we are ever going to see in the rules as written. Hmm. So Dale, I think it's interesting that you bring this up, the, the um, asymmetry of character design versus monster design. And I'm skeptical that wizards would never allow that. I think, I think they allow it all the time. Actually. I think it's part of their core ethos right now, especially as they decide to, uh, remove spells largely from monster stat blocks and give them uh, discrete That's abilities true. instead. Um, however, I, there is a part of this that, that I do think you're right on the money of, and it's that I'm I'm skeptical they would ever uh, delineate spells uh, between good guys can use them and bad guys can use them because that it's it feels un D and D to me. Um, if you look at the monster design, the monster manual, the NPCs. The mage and the archmage, in particular, the mage who is a CR six enemy, you know, designed for uh, fighting six level characters, um, is like an eleventh level wizard, <laughs> wildly outsized in terms of what level character level they are, as opposed to what CR they fight. The archmage who is a CR nine, I think, eleven, something like that, is like 11. a CR eighteen, a level eighteen wizard. Yeah. Um, wild huge amount of spells available to them that yeah that, that CR 11 Archmage has ninth level spells it has time stop for goodness sake um, I, I would love to see more of that you know make banishment a seventh level spell or something like that because I think it, it punches at that at that weight class for certain levels um, and uh, you know just keep doing what they've been doing of having the mage and the Archmage have you know very high level spells available to them compared to what the players would have at the level of which they're fighting them. 
I think that's a have your cake and eat it too moment for what you're talking Ooh. about, Dale. Dante leaves that sound in. That was me eating cake. Um, <laughs> Dante, you're contractually obligated Sorry, to Sorry, audio only people that you had yeah. to deal with that. Um. <laughs> We've talked about it now. It's got to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of things uh, that players have to deal with, um, uh, we had uh, two emails come in which had a pretty similar theme. Uh, if you want to email the podcast, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Send us your questions and we shall to answer them for it is our due in life. It is the, the, the devilish pact we made upon the crossroads. Yes, I will grant you the Eldritch Lawcast if you answer questions. Yeah. And I was like, man, you None sound like my grandma. Yeah. Yeah, damn. Uh, Oh, well, questions it is, I suppose. Um, uh, These questions coming in from Cassia and Callum, and the reason I've sort of uh, partnered these together uh, is because uh, Cassia is asking um, uh, that they're running a one-shot, they're taking over for their uh, forever game master for a single session. Um, And I hope we're not too late on this question, actually, because they were basically asking, um, how do I run a one-shot in the canon of my game master's world because the players want to play the same characters um, because they're they're relatively new at the game so they don't want to have to relearn, you know, everything uh, without making things too difficult when my GM comes back into the the GM's seat. I don't want to make any, like, sweeping changes to their world, even something like, you know, you encounter a dragon and the GM's like, oh, dragons don't exist in the world that I made. Okay, I get, you know, that, that's my example, not theirs. But I just wanted to partner that quickly with Callum's question, who was basically asking, like, what is the art of the one shot? How do you how do you go about creating a one shot specifically as opposed to uh, an ongoing campaign? Dale, well, I, I see you have thoughts. I, for starters, I'm with Callum. One shots are really hard. I find them really hard. Um, but you know, he's just it's this this ridiculous answer is that you do them a lot and you get better at them over time. <laughs> Practice is good. Um, but let me let me just give a couple of examples, right? I think that you shouldn't be worried about wrecking the campaign. I think that you would have to do a lot of of work and prodding at the at the boundaries before you actually broke the regular DMs campaign. Um, don't chuck in a wish spell, I guess. Um, <laughs> no time travel, maybe. It's I I feel like you have to really go at it hard before before you sort of break the. Uh, the structure that is already in place. But I think that there are a lot of things that you can do. I read the email and you mentioned the the um, the idea of it was all a dream being really cheap. But think about what if you had a session where there was some kind of an imp that put you all under a spell and now you're having to actually find your way out of the dream. You know, actually explicitly in text, make it a dream episode. Um, you could have a, a holiday episode. Those are always fun festivals. There's a beach episode. Yeah, a beach episode. Have have these these. Um, there's there's a concept uh, philosophically called festival time, and it's it's the idea that. Um, the rules of reality are kind of suspended a little bit during the holidays and you can sort of exploit that and and have this sort of side reality just for this one festival and then come back to the main story. Do a haunted house episode where you're just, you know, you're, you're cordoned off in this little specific area solving this little specific problem. I think that you'll actually find that you can you can do a lot of things that are super fun that are that are really um, centered on on one problem to solve. Dale, I want to grab this and run for just 30 seconds. I, I, 
I, I don't think what I have to say has so much meat on the bone that I need to talk for ages about it, but um, like things in RPGs that tamper with player agency, like body swap, body mind swap, or, you know, someone is possessed and does wild things, ways in which the characters act like not themselves usually feel like cheap punches for a DM to pull in an ongoing campaign. They're, they're the episodes of Star Trek I like the least because I want to, I came here for these characters, damn it. I want to see them be themselves and not an alien possessing one of them. But for a side DM one shot, they're actually perfect because no one expects you know, real fidelity to the campaign in a, in a major way because they already know that someone else is at the wheel. Um, so if you have some kind of goofy stuff that you want to pull, uh, then the, the sheer sort of like metagame of it all of, oh, this isn't a regular DM is kind of enough to scrub away all of those, you know, finagly little nitpicks anyway. Uh, I've written way too many one shots in my life. Uh, so he, just just a few tips. Uh, use pre-gens if you, if you can. If you can make some pre-gens that have an actual strong hook, strong connection, maybe some secret goals uh, for the characters that are specifically talked about in the adventure, some uh, traits that the characters might have, some tools that the characters might be given on their character sheet that are specifically addressed in the adventure that you write you are going to make some people very happy because they get to do the cool things that you put on their character sheet. Uh, stick with a linear plot, especially if you're on a time limit. Generally, if you're running a one shot, you've got three or four hours and then we're done forever. So make it linear because if you have some free range NPCs, uh, you're never gonna get to the end. Uh, and hopefully the end is something cool that you want them to see. So make it linear. You can make it so they, if they go to A or B, uh, they can't go to B or A. Once they're done, they go directly to C. Um, you can do stuff like that to give choice, but but keep it keep it on a pretty straight path, um, and keep it shorter than you think it should be. Uh, is I think is very important <laughs> because once you introduce the the players to their characters and the characters to each other, you're going to quickly run out of time. And again, the end is usually the strength of your one shot. So make sure you get to the end and have time for denouement and and so on. Yeah, I uh, I run a I ran a one shot for my mum and two of my siblings not that long ago, where um, I had already planned quite a linear adventure. Um, and I, I tend to suspend uh, my my logic rules uh, when I'm doing a one shot a little bit. You know, I like my traps to make sense. But if it's a one shot, I'm just like, you know what? It's just a fun puzzle and it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, I planned this this fairly linear thing. And then my mom really wanted to interact with NPCs. So I suddenly ended up with three NPCs that were really detailed and it it took a, a bit of a different, you know, detour in the middle there that took up a bunch of extra time. I had to cut some stuff. You know, you will end up finding that you have to prepare something much shorter than what you are uh, actually intending to run. Mm. By the mm. way, just a fun little tidbit at the end of that session, the my mum, the, the like finale was that there was this character, this sort of um, arrogant uh, adventurer character who was very rich and uh, the player characters had defeated the dragon and this guy showed up and wanted his cut of the treasure and my mum I suspended the rules a little bit again my mum basically charmed him into thinking that he should go in under this frozen lake 
to get the treasure. She convinced him that that's where the treasure was and he should go and get it. And he drowned. My mum fully made an evil cleric PC for her first ever character. And she played it to a T and I was so proud. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Dale's mum. Hope you're watching this. <laughs> Dale's mum, the, the new sort of... Uh, ethereal mascot of the podcast just yeah. this, this kind of like off-screen character um now, an angelic presence watching out for us anytime yeah. <laughs> please james write that <laughs> the we could you know what we actually all right dead set we need a dale adventure setting right like campaign setting and it's like warlock of dale's mum uh, Warlock of the Gentleman. Uh, they're just the two starting places that I can yeah. see. Um, Dale's Dale, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Um, let's make it happen. The next uh, uh, Forged with Ghostfire. Um, <laughs> well, that is about all we have time for today. If you want to email the podcast and ask us questions, you can email uh, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. If you are watching this on YouTube, you are watching it on our shiny new uh, YouTube channel, which is currently dedicated entirely to the Eldritch Lawcast. So consider subscribing, um, uh, uh, make the Eldritch Lawcast uh, feel the love um, from you, whoever you are, um, uh, and uh, be back next week because we will be back next week with another episode. Uh, my name is Ben Byrne here, as always, with Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, and until next week, play some more d and I don't know. I feel like we need an outro, Monica. I don't know what it would be, but... Um, Who's yeah, Monica? Bum, 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 bum. And that's the outro. <laughs> good, 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 good. Not silly, not we silly at all. We are professionals, folks. We are professionals. <laughs> <laughs>